For the second year, the State Department has recognized employees who enable better use of data in the art of diplomacy. Data for Diplomacy is both an awards program and a part of the department's modernization plan. This year's group award went to people in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations for their work in a program called the Conflict Observatory. Eric White got the details from the team lead, Susan Wolfenbarger. So I am in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations Office of Advanced Analytics. And locate is just a quick way of conveying what we're trying to do. We're trying to locate things around the world. So it stands for Location-Based Observations for Conflict Analysis, Trends, and Evidence. And what we do is focus on how we can take advantage of all of the new open source and commercial data feeds and technologies and platforms that are out there to design foreign assistance and overseas programs to help the, the department become more data-driven in the work that we're doing. Gotcha. And so what kind of platforms are you utilizing for this kind of work? Well, we have one flagship program right now. I will say it's called the Conflict Observatory. And that program is focused on documenting Russia's war crimes and other abuses in Ukraine. And the backbone of that platform is an ArcGIS enterprise. It's a platform from a software company called Esri, and they're the kind of premier geospatial software provider in the world. And so we're using that system as the backbone for all of the analysis that's happening as part of the Conflict Observatory. So thinking about satellite imagery analysis and open source investigations and how we can feed all of these different data products into a common repository so that a whole team has a centralized location to work together and, and produce analysis. And when you say analysis, break it down for us there. I'm thinking geospatial, it's you know, <laughs> a satellite imagery and, and, and faraway pictures. How is this analysis used to formulate State Department action or policy? Sure. So all of the, the work, as I said, is commercial or open source. Uh, so all of this data can be a whole variety of different types of information. A lot of it is satellite-based, and everything that the Conflict Observatory is doing is remote. So you can do this analysis from anywhere in the world, and the data feeds largely do cover most areas of the world as well. And so thinking about satellite imagery, there are a whole suite of different products that are out there, all the way from thermal detections that we're getting from NASA satellites to very high-resolution optical visible imagery through uh, companies like Maxar and Planet and Black Sky. And then we're also using some kind of mid-range imagery from small sats that collect imagery every single day covering most of the surface of the Earth. So we're really thinking about how do we deal with just such a huge amount of information, and that's just from the satellite imagery. That's not thinking about, you know, in the, in the context of Ukraine, all of the information that's being volunteered online on social media and chat rooms, all of these things. So the teams are also pulling that type of information. So it can be photos and videos that they take key identifying landmarks and geolocate those to help understand what's happening on the ground to go alongside perhaps the satellite imagery of a situation. And so really thinking about triangulating with multiple 
types of information to understand what has happened in specific incidents. The conflict in Ukraine is unprecedented for several reasons, but one of them is the amount of help that the you you mentioned a lot of the commercial companies and open source places that you're able to go to for this kind of information. I mean, has has there ever been something like this where you you all are able to take a this kind of view of a conflict happening on the ground and have all these sources to pull from? I think we really have hit a new point. I've been doing this for more years than I will admit to um, at this point, uh, both the nonprofit sector before coming to the State Department. So I can remember, you know, when you would be lucky to get one satellite image in a couple of weeks time frame, and now we can get daily satellite imagery. So, you know, just on the, the availability of the commercial imagery front, it's a huge innovation over the past just couple of years for the availability of information that, that we have at our hands. And then, you know, with the, you know, the proliferation of smartphones and good Internet connections all over the world, people are taking photos, taking videos and sharing that information publicly. And so I think really for what's happening in Ukraine, it, it's really hit a critical juncture for the availability of these different sensing technologies because, you know, cell phones are sensors, <laughs> just like satellites. And so I think going forward and thinking about potential other things that are happening in the world, you know, we're going to start seeing this level of documentation happen as more of a matter of course in, in, the, in the coming days and years. And how crucial has industry's role been in this? Uh, you know, famously, Starlink has been providing Internet for Ukrainian citizens during the conflict when they lost access to it. But what other ways has, you know, has your work been greatly improved because commercial companies have stepped up in, in, in providing these uh, these crucial software and, and imaging? Well, I, I will, I'll start off by saying I'm only operating in the fully remote realm for this work. But, you know, thinking about all of the commercial innovations that are happening in just the, you know, just the satellite field is a huge innovation. The, the availability of small sats that are collecting daily imagery is a huge innovation because that level of coverage used to be, and I'm going get to a, get a little uh, deep diving on the tech for just a moment, Please do. <laughs> get very large areas covered with satellite imagery. We used to have to use uh, data from sources like Landsat that would be 30 meters per pixel. So you could see, kind of see houses and things like that. But now with some of these daily products, they're about three to five meters. So you can easily pick out buildings and, and monitor things in a way that we haven't been able to do across very large areas. So it's really both just the increase of the types of data that's being collected, but also how broadly it's being collected. And I think that's super critical for Ukraine because, it, you know, the things that are happening is over a very large area. And you have to think about how you can triage such a, a large area and so much data. And so I think that that is one of the innovations that the conflict observatory team is really bringing to us. They're taking advantage of AI and machine learning techniques to, to really help us go from looking at Eastern Ukraine to being able to pinpoint the sites of specific incidents. And, and that's really critical because you can't 
monitor such a large area manually. I'm thinking about, you know, you know, when you're on Google Earth or, or Google Maps, you zoom in down to like the level of your house and you look at your block. You can't scroll through that for something that I, you know, the size of Eastern Ukraine. And so the, you know, in addition to the availability of the data, I think it's also important to think about the processing of that data and how those advances in AI and machine learning are helping small teams cover very large areas. Right. And because the data is only is, is only good to you if you have the analytics behind it. So can you just describe a little bit more about that process and, and what you all have in store for analyzing all this array of data? So I'll, I'll give a example of how we're taking advantage of all the, the different data feeds. And it's really allowing the teams to quickly go from a whole country's worth of data down to an individual site. So the, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative is one of the partners on the Conflict Observatory, and they are monitoring cultural sites for damage. And what they are doing is using multiple different data feeds to get from what well, we want to know what's happening to cultural sites across the country down to identifying damage at specific sites. So the first step in the process is that they're using, and I mentioned this earlier, NASA data that is actually thermal detections, because a lot of things that happen in a conflict zone produce heat, and such as burning. And so that data is collected every day. That will help us get a sense of where things are happening. We also have a database of all the cultural sites. And so when you overlay those two pieces of information, and you also narrow it down to just urban areas, that can give you a, a, a good idea of where you should be looking. And we're really excited about a new data feed that's coming in from the partner Planetscape AI. They are doing automatic damage assessments for buildings across the whole of Eastern Ukraine. So they're using daily satellite imagery and running some AI and machine learning processes on that imagery to automatically find damaged and destroyed buildings across a very large area. So then you add that piece of information into it and you have multiple pieces of information. You have heat signatures, you have damaged buildings that have been detected. We have the locations of the cultural sites and then that allows the team to then go to high resolution satellite imagery because that's a very limited resource comparatively to these other sources of data. And then they can actually zoom in and look in detail at the damage that they've identified through these other processes. So it's really that method of triaging and working through vast amounts of data to get down to those incidents of interest that's, I think, one of the biggest innovations that the Conflict Observatory team has been able to achieve in this program. Got it. And so obviously they're pleased about it, the higher-ups, they're giving you an award. Uh, but what have you heard from uh, State Department leaders about how crucial this has been in them formulating policy and you know responses to what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah, I think that the, this program has been hugely helpful. You know, when you have a conflict situation, there's often just a, a real lack of credible information out in the public sphere. And so the fact that we have this phenomenal team of subject matter experts that are part of the conflict observatory doing this research and putting out 
publicly is so critical to our efforts to share information about Russia's abuses in Ukraine. I think we've seen, you know, lots of statements from both U.S. leaders and from people and, and leadership from overseas citing conflict observatory reports, particularly one of the recent reports on the relocation of Ukrainian children across Russia. The work that's being done with these completely remote data sources is really giving the public and policymakers critical information that they can trust and, and rely on as they're making decisions and operating in their in their positions. I think one of the last things that I would say, and I, I've hinted about this a couple of times, is that you know the conflict observatory right now is focused on Ukraine, but this is a capability that is available globally. The, all the data feeds almost are available covering the entire world. And what I hope as part of my, my role is in the locate team is that we can take advantage of, of what we've learned in documenting war crimes in Ukraine and apply that to other conflict-related situations. In Ukraine, as I said, we're only looking at, at war crimes, but this platform, this technology, these data sources can be used to monitor a whole range of other events like ceasefires and other types of events on the ground. So I think and I hope that you'll be hearing more about conflict observatories in the future. Susan Wolfenbarger is team lead in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the State Department and a winner in this year's Data for Diplomacy Awards program. We'll have more of these winners in the future. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally as a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kinda brilliant. see all of that, you that's know? That's <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.